Hey everybody, welcome back to the What If Project podcast. It is great to have you along today. Uh, Hey, it's early in the morning for me. Uh, I am recording this before anyone in the house is awake. Just the cats are awake. And when I woke up, the moment I woke up and came downstairs, they wanted food, they were meowing, screaming at me. So hopefully, now that they have eaten, uh, they will be quiet and uh, they will not scream in the background of this uh, episode. I got a nice big cup of coffee here in front of me, and uh, life life is good. Uh, a couple things. This week, I have been interviewing people. Uh, I've done two interviews this week. I have one um, in two weeks from now, then another one uh, shortly after that, and then that will have kind of take care of all of our interviews through, let's see, February, March... April, May, all the way through May. Um, I also have another interview that I'm going to do in March and one in April, and I have kind of one lined up for every month of the rest of the year. Um, So it's going to be great. I have some really great people coming on. Uh, We're going to talk about some really cool stuff. Uh, This summer, I have a special podcasting series I'm going to be doing, and we will have an interview every week in the month of July uh, for that series. So I'm super excited about that. Uh, details to come later on. Um, also, dissertation done. Uh, date is set for April for me to go up to New York to defend it. Um, assuming I pass, I will be graduating. I will be Dr. Glenn Siepert, which is very exciting for me. Uh, this has been a very long journey, so I uh, can't wait to do that. can't wait for that to be done. Uh, it's going to be lots and lots of Fun. This, though, is episode number 28, and uh, it's week two of our two or three part series, which is called Burn Those Books, where I'm kind of talking about uh, the three books that impacted me the most in 2018 and books that might not be welcome in your typical um, church. So maybe some edgy kind of books in the, in the world of Christianity and uh, theology. Uh, this week, I want to share with you a little bit from a book called A Bigger Table by a guy named John Pavlovitz. If you want to look up the name or the book, A Bigger Table, John Pavlovitz, P-A-V-L-O-V-I-T-Z. And to be honest, I never like really heard of this guy, Pavlovitz, and uh, uh, until I guess I came across his book, which was at the Wild Goose uh, festival last summer. He was there. He was speaking. His book was there. And uh, he has an extensive story that you can go and Google, uh, read about it online. But I'll just tell you that like this guy is a uh, what I would call a boat rocker. Uh, and I love that, right? He's not, he's not afraid to rock the boat, uh, kick the hornet's nest, challenge the status quo, whatever you want to call it. And uh, oftentimes, like when I read his blog or I hear him speaking online or something like that, if I like listen to something... I come away uh, feeling, I don't know, like uncomfortable, challenged, full of some remorse for the state of the church, the state of the world, and sometimes even the state of my own heart. Um, The full title of the book is A A Bigger Table, Building a Messy, Authentic, and Hopeful Spiritual Community. And it explores kind of the place that the table had in Jesus' life and ministry. And not like just the communion table, but the actual table where story after story after story, uh, we see Jesus meeting with various kinds of people uh, at a table to share a meal. 
there's tax collectors, there's lepers, there's prostitutes, uh, his disciples, even like Pharisees, right? The religious leaders. Uh, the, the table, you could say, played a really huge role in the life of Jesus. And at times in the stories, it's almost as if the table is its own character in the story. Kind of this thing that draws all different kinds of people in so they can sit with, uh, meet with, talk with, and, and just be in the presence of, of Jesus. And the remarkable thing about the table, though, that I think is sometimes overlooked is that, that no one has ever turned away from the table. If the table represents the kingdom of God, and, and I think it does, no one has turned away. Instead, everyone is welcomed, and everyone is always present at it. Everyone. Uh, there are even times in the Gospels, like in Mark chapter 2, where Jesus is sitting at the table with tax collectors and sinners while the Pharisees and church leaders stand off to the side, and they're grumbling and they're complaining, and you know, this guy Jesus hangs out with these lowly humans, these sinful people. But, but notice, though, the Pharisees aren't sitting at the table, but they're still there, right? Like, they might not be sitting at the table, but they're still in the presence of the table. And I think that's kind of how the table works. And I think that's how the kingdom of God works, really. Everyone is invited. Everyone is in its presence because the table is everywhere. But only some people will choose to actually sit, partake, and enjoy it to its fullest extent. Everyone, even people that don't want to be there, are there. Uh, Or I should say, even people that we don't want to be there are there. And I guess people that don't want to be there as well are there. Like the Pharisees, for example. Right? And that's the thing that makes the table so challenging. Like, I might love to hang out with a tax collector and declare, yeah, even this guy's at the table, right? The church turned him away, but Jesus brought him in. Or maybe the LGBTQ person, or the drunk, or the addict, or the prostitute, or the single mom that's been divorced three times. But the reality is that the stuck-up religious leader who thinks he's better than all of those people, he's got a place at the table too. Just as much as the tax collector, the prostitute, on and on and on. Again, everyone has a spot. Now, as I did last week with McLaren's book, I kind of want to share with you just like one part of um, a bigger table that impacted me the most, and then talk a little bit about how I've been working it into my life and what we do here at the uh, What If What If Project. Now, early on in the book, uh, Pavlovitz talks about what sent him on this path of what we would call deconstruction. Um, if that's like a new term for you, basically it refers to a uh, like I guess like a season of life uh, that you would enter into as a result of realizing that your faith, uh, your worldview, your concept of God, the way that you read the Bible or some other ancient text, it no longer works or fits in the world uh, as you have experienced it to be. And so you begin to deconstruct what you used to believe or how you used to believe or whatever, not so that you can throw the whole thing away, but so that you can reconstruct it back into something that's more, uh, more beautiful than it was before, something that will be more of a positive force in your life and therefore also more impactful for the lives of those around you. Pavlovich says it like this. Here's a quote. He says, sometimes reality begins to argue with your theology. Uh, your experience no longer matches your belief system, and you stand in the precarious spot where those two things rub up against one another in tumultuous effort. 
Uh, for him, he says the season of deconstruction began when he started to find out um, that traditional Christian understanding regarding homosexuality no longer rang true in his world and in his experience. Uh, once he became friends with some LGBTQ people and he had real-life encounters with real people who had real names and real emotions and stories and backgrounds and dreams, he began to realize that how he was reading the Bible and understanding God in relation to those kinds of people uh, no longer worked. And so the deconstruction of his, you know, these people aren't welcome theology began so that he could ultimately reconstruct it into an everyone is welcome theology. And that kind of made me think uh, about my own deconstruction um, and what that looks like. Now, this is like by no means a complete narrative or a story of how I got to where I am in my faith. But I wanted just to give you today like a small glimpse into the bigger story of why I'm doing what I'm doing here at the What If Project. Now, it's no secret that uh, the way I think about God and the Bible and theology and Jesus and Christianity uh, has experienced what you might call a little bit of a migration or a shift or an evolution or even a deconstruction over the last year. Uh, Lots of people have commented on it. A few people have challenged me. Um, Some have even turned away and walked, turned their back on me uh, because of it. Uh, I've been called a whole bunch of things in the last year or so. Um, Heretic. I've had people tell me that I've strayed. Um, I've gone off the deep end. I'm a lost man. Uh, Some guy called me a butt-hurt snowflake, whatever that means. Um, A wolf, um, a disappointment, um, a social justice warrior, Christian, um, sort of sarcastically. Uh, But truth be told, you know, deconstruction for me has been going on for like the last 10 years, even though I've only really been vocal about it in the last year. Uh, Back when all those kinds of people used to like me and hang on the different words I said or blogged about or podcasted about, I was internally wrestling with words and ideas and thoughts that I wasn't really ready to vocalize yet. Uh, words that I knew would draw anger from the church faithful, um, ideas that I knew would cause some people to turn away, uh, thoughts that I knew would bring my own reputation in the church under fire, um, thoughts I knew would rock the boat, kick the hornet's nest, whatever you want to call it. Um, you see, I used to think that uh, I used to think that God was wrathful, uh, that God was angry, and I used to think that Jesus died to save me from that wrath. Um, I used to think that LGBTQ was a sin, um, that premarital sex was the greatest of all sins. Um, I used to think that there was no other way to be than pro-life, that the death penalty is, you know, no problem with it, no big deal. Uh, I used to think that the Bible was a rule book or a guidebook of sorts that told you how to live and what to do. Uh, I used to think that in order to get to heaven, I had to believe the right things about Jesus. I used to believe that uh, there was a literal hell where God sends people uh, without a second thought to be tortured for all of eternity. Um, I used to think that getting into heaven and escaping hell was like the ultimate goal in life. In many ways, I was like the poster child for that type of Christianity. My theology was on point, and uh, mixed into it, I could bring a congregation to its knees with a sermon as I used it to encourage people to um, 
know that they are loved by God and there's grace and there's mercy and all these different things. And everything was like really black and white for me. You know, Christian, non-Christian, good, evil, light, dark, right, wrong, a right way to read the Bible, a wrong way to read the Bible, a right way to understand a verse, a wrong way to understand a verse, gay, straight, believe in Jesus, go to heaven, don't believe, go to hell, good theology, bad theology, right? Black and white. Um, In seminary, I graduated at the top of my class with a preaching scholarship. Um, I had all but memorized, like cover to cover, my systematic theology books. And I could argue pretty much any position on any topic and have it argued pretty much pretty well in so many Bible verses that like by the time we were done, your head would be spinning around, right? Pro-life, LGBTQ, divorce, alcohol, premarital sex, you name it, I could take a stance on it and hold my own. And it's ironic now, but I see so much of myself in so many of the people that I encounter on like various social media platforms, Uh, people that have an an arsenal of Bible verses. And like a lawyer in front of a jury can argue their stance, no problem, by stringing together uh, this verse and that verse and this verse and that verse to build an almost impenetrable wall of logic and uncertainty. All of it grounded in like so much anger and this need to be right that they're not even open to the idea that maybe, just maybe there's another way to understand the issue. That used to be me. I can describe it so well because that was my life. Um, I was the guy that would go to church and seminary, hear something that the pastor said uh, that put up my bad theology radar, and I would go home. Now it's been hours in my books uh, researching all the reasons why that person was wrong. And then I would take all of that research, I would jam it way back in the, in the filing cabinet of my brain so that later I could pull it out um, and sideswipe some unexpecting person uh, with it who held an opinion that was different than my own. Um, that was me. That's like a, a pretty good description of the kind of uh, spiritual, Christian, religious person that I was. But then something changed. Now, granted, it's been a process. There's no definitive moment when like everything began to change uh, deconstruction kicked into high gear, but there's just one story from what today feels like ages ago that sticks out in my mind as the moment or maybe season of my life where I at least began to ask some questions, uh, most of which I kept to myself for the last 10 years. Uh, it's about 10 years ago. I was two years um, out of seminary, got my master's degree, and two years into what would be a three-year stint at uh, pastoring a a church in New Jersey. And it was an old uh, Dutch Reformed church, which is basically like the birthplace of all things theologically conservative, and uh, a place that very well mirrored my black and white, you know, Bible is a rule book, don't you dare mess with how I understand the Bible mentality. Um, I wasn't quite as big on that thinking when I was there, but I was really comfortable there because that, that mirrored pretty well um, where I had been at for most of my life. Now, I remember one time I preached a sermon that uh, touched on the debate of what theologians call predestination, which is a big thing in the Reformed uh, denomination, which taken to the extreme is this idea that God decided before the creation of the universe that 
he decided what would happen, um, when it would happen, who would believe in him, right? Who would believe in Jesus, um, who would go to heaven and who would go to hell. So God basically knew beforehand, this person will do this, that person will do this, this person will end up there, that person will end up there, this will happen to that person, that will happen to this person, etc. So in essence, God knew a bazillion years ago that Dana and I, my wife, and I would have a miscarriage a few years ago and decided a bazillion years ago that my friend, who is an atheist, would be an atheist and would therefore have no chance of going to heaven, but would be destined to rot in the fires of hell for all of eternity for believing the wrong things about Jesus. Uh, to frame it, in the context of Pavlovitz's book, God decided long ago who would be welcome at the table and who would not be welcome at the table. And I used to believe that. Like at one time in my life, again, I had all the Bible verses, all the arguments, all the answers. And if you took a view or a side that was different than mine, I would, I would destroy you. Like that's just what I did. That was my goal. Uh, but for whatever reason, I remember this topic of predestination coming up in a sermon series that I was taking the church through. Um, and in one particular sermon, I don't remember exactly what I said. So this is, you know, this is a rough estimation of what I said. But I remember saying something along the lines of, I'm just not sure that it works this way. Like I talked about predestination. I said, I'm not sure that it works this way. Like I'm not 100% sold on the idea that God was picking out of a hat a bazillion years ago and deciding to send this person to hell and that person to heaven. And a bazillion of years ago, doing this before that individual had any opportunity, was even born, had any opportunity to say or do anything that might actually be pleasing to God. Now, I didn't say that it wasn't possible, right? Today, I would. I would say it's impossible. I would say it's silly. Uh, I didn't say I didn't believe it. Today, I definitely would. I do not believe that. Um, I didn't say that it wasn't biblical. Today, I definitely would. I don't think that's all what the Bible teaches. I just said that at that moment in my life, I wasn't sure. Maybe I, I once was 100% sure, but now I'm not 100%. Maybe I'm like 90%. I, I'm just, there's, there's some doubt in there. Now, when the sermon was over, I went back to my office and like, I will never forget this. There was this woman from the congregation sitting in my office with a book in her hand waiting for me. And she had a scowl on her face. She handed me the book, told me to sit down, handed me the book, and basically said that my theology was in need of some tweaking and updating if I was going to continue to preach in their pulpit. And she said, I needed to learn how to speak the hard truths of the Christian faith to the people in our church because that's what real pastors do, right? Warn people of the fires of hell and teach the sovereignty of God who is good, even though we don't understand why he chooses some to go to heaven and some he creates and chooses to go to hell. Now, she said a few other unkind things, and then she left. And I remember thinking to myself when she left, kind of standing in my office, I was off to the side by my desk, looking at the door as it closed, thinking to myself, this just doesn't feel right. Like, that was weird, right? In my heart, I knew I used to be that woman. Like I said earlier, I was the guy who would get so worked up by a pastor saying something that I thought was bad theology that I would get my books out and approach that pastor and set them straight, just like she tried to set me straight. But I guess when it was done to me, and I was on the other side of it, and I could literally see the anger in her eyes, the pride on her face, her refusal to see things differently. 
I don't know. You know, like it just felt so gross to me. And as I flipped through that book that she left in my hand about how God is angry, sending people to hell left and right, ah, like something inside of me just kind of rose up and said, no. Like I just couldn't stomach the idea that a good God who is supposedly represented in the life and person of Jesus would handpick real life people with real life names, stories, backgrounds, and dreams to spend eternity in hell. And more than that, I couldn't imagine a God represented in Jesus not having a seat reserved for everyone at his table. Like I couldn't imagine God telling lepers, prostitutes, tax collectors, people who believe differently than me, sorry, you're not welcome here. Like I decided a bazillion years ago that you would go to hell and that's where you're going. Because that's exactly the opposite of the God that we see in Jesus. Um, I, I said this last week, I'll say it again. If Jesus came to represent a God who is exclusive, so much so that this God is sending large parts of humanity to hell for believing the wrong things, then Jesus did a really lousy job at representing that God. In my head, a small voice said, that's ridiculous. And as best as I can tell, it's that small voice that at least cracked open a very small door in my heart that has set me on this path of deconstruction and now more so reconstruction over the last 10 years. Now, fast forward nine years later uh, to October of 2017, uh, I was taking a class at Alliance Theological Seminary, the last in-class class for my doctoral program with a professor named Bo Sanders. Now, Bo was teaching a communications class, and uh, he was talking about the gospel, the good news, the Bible, Jesus, God, faith, and how to talk about all of those things in 2017. And all of that was, was super good, except I noticed something different about this guy by like the second day. Um, it was a, a, like a, it's like a five-day class, and so like maybe a day or so in, I noticed something different, right? Like he wasn't, he wasn't like all of my other professors. He didn't talk like they did. He didn't use the same language that they did. He didn't use the same tone, didn't quote the same authors. This guy was different. Like I said, it was a five-day class. It met for eight hours a day. And on day one, I spent all those eight hours in the back of the room, the back row, with my friends, half listening, half texting my wife, who was home uh, back in the Carolinas with our seven-month-old daughter. Uh, but then he started to quote some authors that I had read over the last 10 years. Uh, authors that I knew were frowned upon by my tribe of Christians and a fair amount of people who were um, in the classroom with me that week. Uh, guys like Rob Bell, Richard Rohr, Pete Enns, Brian McLaren. He never used their names, but I knew I heard of the content before that he was teaching. I knew that I had read it in some of their books. So suddenly he's got my attention, right? So for the next four days, I sat in the front row, phone zipped in my backpack, my fingers typing every word that came out of his mouth. And on the fourth day of class, I worked up the courage to approach him. And I went up to him off to the side. He was, I was during a break. He was eating a donut, drinking his coffee. And I said something like, I'm not 100% sure uh, how the dean let you in here. <laughs> Or, or how in the world you convinced him to come in here and talk about the things you're talking about. And just so you know, like 99% of what you're sharing is going right over the heads of my fellow students. But for me, it's scratching an itch that's been itching for the last 10 years 
that no one has been able to scratch. Like, I needed this. I need more of this. And I need more of people like you in my life. Will you help me? Now, Bo and I have been talking for the last year, um, and we even did a directed self-study together as the final elective in, my, in the doctoral program that I'm in. Uh, we talk on the phone, we text, we connect on social media, we email. And I really credit Bo with, uh, I would say, giving me the permission to open the door in my heart that the small voice ever so slightly cracked open 10 years ago in my office at that old church after that woman in my congregation dropped that ridiculous book in my hand and told me that I needed, needed to preach about an angry God who predestines people to hell, and then she stormed out my door. Uh, Bo gave me the permission to go deeper and explore that voice that was inside that said that this is ridiculous. And so here I am a year and a half later, after that class, uh, 10 years after that morning in my office, um, on this podcast, recording episode number 28 of their What If Project, and looking forward to interviewing some of the authors uh, this year who have written the books that I've been secretly reading over the last 10 years. And truth be told, where I'm at today, I no longer believe that God is wrathful. I no longer believe that Jesus died to save me from God's what I would call non-existent wrath. I no longer think that LGBTQ is a sin. I no longer think that premarital sex is the greatest sin or maybe even a sin at all. Uh, I no longer think that pro-life is the correct position to hold or that pro-choice people are evil. I no longer think that the death penalty is okay, you know, no problem. I no longer think that the Bible is a rule book or a guidebook. I, I no longer think that in order to get to heaven, I have to believe the right things about Jesus. I no longer think that getting to heaven and escaping hell is the ultimate goal. I no longer believe in hell as a place of eternal uh, damnation. Much of what was carefully constructed over the last eight years of my, or just over the eight years of my Christian schooling when I was a kid, and then the four years of Bible college and five years of seminary, uh, all of that stuff has been quietly and carefully deconstructed slowly over the last 10 years. I would say heavily deconstructed in the last year and a half, and now is slowly and steadily being pieced back together and reconstructed into something beautiful that I think is really needed in the world. Now, I certainly haven't arrived. Okay, I'll say that loud and clear. And I certainly don't have everything figured out. The, the truth is I have more questions than I ever have before. And I, I'm kind of more uncertain about God and faith and Jesus and what all of that means than I ever was before. But even so, I find that oddly comfortable. Like I find it oddly comfortable to take my place in a long history of God followers who, based upon the stories of the Bible, seem to have spent much of their own lives and much of their own time trying to figure out who is this God? What is he up to in the world? What does it mean to follow him? And what exactly was Jesus doing when he came here? Right? Like When you read the Bible, people are trying to figure this out. Some 2,000 years ago, Jesus came and I think he showed us what it all means. How he showed us that to follow God and to be like God means that you make your life into a gigantic table of sorts that welcomes anyone and everyone to come and to be loved. No stipulations, no ifs, no ands, no buts. Um, it's a table that has a space that's reserved for everyone, a space that I don't think is ever revoked, never given to someone else. It's a table where laughter ensues, 
Tears are welcomed, the outsiders are brought in, and people raise their glasses. Uh, this, there is no place at this table for an angry God who predestines people to hell. But there is most certainly a place for a loving God who refuses to give up on or throw anyone away. I think that it is that God who is the table. And I tell you all of this to bring it back to Pavlovitz's book. This deconstruction and reconstruction has created in me a deliberate intention to build a bigger table and to keep expanding it and expanding it and expanding it so that it becomes bigger and bigger and bigger. That's exactly what I intend to do for the rest of my days um, here at the What If Project, for however long that might go on, and whatever might be waiting for me after that, and after that, and after that. This, my friends, uh, is episode number 28, and part two of our three-part series, Burn Those Books. Go pick up A Bigger Table by John Pavlovitz. Read it, burn it, do what you got to do, but go get it. Let it challenge you. Let it inspire you. And uh, I will see you next week. Bye-bye.